We're going to jump in. We've actually kind of combined two doctrines this morning, uh, just for the sake of scheduling. So the doctrine of humanity and the doctrine of sin. And last week we considered creation. So we did touch on a little bit about uh, God creating Adam and Eve in his likeness. So some of it we've already hit on, so that'll be a little bit shorter uh, section. But there's obviously uh, a connection between these two doctrines, right? Because the doctrine of sin, or sin itself, has so strongly infected and affected each one of us. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to start by looking at what it means to be a human being made in the image of God, and then we'll spend some time uh, thinking through the Bible's teaching on the problem of sin. So very practical things this morning, okay? So let's start, if you got your hand out, you'll look uh, the doc- under the doctrine of humanity. Let's start with a definition, okay? So the biblical doctrine of humanity sees each person created in God's image, either man, either a man or a woman by God's making, fallen through Adam's historical sin, formed for vocation unto God and redeemable in and through Jesus Christ. I'll repeat that if you're wanting to get that down. The biblical doctrine of humanity sees each person created in the image of God, either a man or a woman by God's making, fallen through Adam's sin, formed for vocation, and redeemable in and through Jesus Christ. So any any discussion on the Christian doctrine of humanity We'll begin with a reference, or at some point, the reference will be made to the Imago Dei, okay, this uh, Latin term made in the image of God. So 16 centuries ago, St. Augustine wrote this now famous line, thou hast formed us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. That was from Augustine's book, Confessions. So this quote, I think, is helpful on at least two fronts because it acknowledges two things. First, ontologically, or you know, it acknowledges our origin. Each person is created by God for God. As Augustine said, thou hast formed us for thyself. This gets at the heart of what it is to be human. And this foundation will serve as well as we think through what it means to be made in the image of God. Second, Augustine points out that our hearts are restless until what? Do we find our rest in God? So this implies that though created for God, our restless, restlessness implies that we are fallen, we are separated from that divine purpose. But there is hope. We can find rest. And of course, that is the hope of redemption. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 1. If you're going to be considering the Imago Dei, you're going to start at the beginning. So Genesis 1 Verse 26 and following. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
what does being made in the image of God, according to this text, prepare the first man and woman to do? What do you see in the text that being made in the image of God prepares Adam and Eve to do? Okay. Nick said, have authority, which is certainly there. What else? Okay, yep, procreate. Good. Anything else? If you flip over to Genesis 2, verse 15... The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. That the Hebrew there, to work and to keep, could also be understood, maybe even more accurately, as to watch and guard, which is kind of a priestly role. So there was, there's this idea of stewardship, of shepherding, um, that Adam was tasked with. So we have, we have authority or dominion fulfilling the dominion mandate. Um, ruling over creation, filling the earth with children, and stewarding it all to the glory of God. Okay, So whatever it means to be made in the image of God, it cannot be separated from those, uh, from those activities. Okay, Now, depending on who you read, what theologian you like to read or whatever, there's not, there's not really a consensus about uh, what it, precisely what it means to be made imago Dei or to be made in the image of God. Um, what are some of the ways maybe you've heard this explained, or what are some of the ways that you might think about being made in the image of God? What all does it entail? Okay. So Sam says, dignity and worth because we've been stamped with the image of God. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How so? Okay. Our bodies will die, but our souls will live forever. Yeah. Any, anything else with regards to being made in the image of God? Okay, the reflection of who he is, good. Yeah. So uh, some of the ways that Imago Dei has been understood throughout Christian history, Luther uh, highlighted the righteousness view. Um, So he understood the image as the gift of holiness, right? God is holy and we are called to be holy. Uh, Karl Barth, a 20th century uh, German theologian, uh, saw, saw Imago Dei in relational terms. So the, uh, the rooting of imaging is found in marriage and in relationship to one another. And in this way, we, we image the Trinity, which you know, is relational, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Calvin uh, saw the image as a particular trait or ability of the human person with reason and knowledge of God being a commonly held 
interpretation of this. So we're able to reason, we're able to understand that makes us distinct from the rest of creation. And then there's the ontological view, which I think is what many of you are expressing, um, which gets to this idea that uh, that man is, is the image and glory of God. So the ontological view is a belief that the image is not so much something that we do, right? Um, but it is something that we are. So you think of verses like Genesis 5.1, uh, Genesis 9.6, 1 Corinthians 11.7. So the image is not a trait. It is simply who we are. We are the only living creature made in God's image. So what separates us from the angels on one hand or animals on the other hand is our identity simply by the making of God, okay? So how does this kind of ontological view, uh, from, the, from a practical standpoint, how might it differ or influence practical thinking with regards to the image of God as, re- as it relates to or contrasts with kind of those other ways of understanding the image of God? So not to say that Calvin got it wrong, because I would never want to <laughs> question that guy. Because um, I think that these different ways, I think there's different ways of looking at something. But simply looking at, say, Calvin's understanding of the image of God, that it's found in knowledge, in reason. I mean, what would we say about a person who's lying in a hospital bed unconscious? Do, do they therefore no longer have the image of God because they're maybe not able to exercise those traits in that moment? How does the ontological view maybe affect us, our thinking differently? Yeah, so the ontological view uh, is a belief that the image is not something that we do, but something that we are. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah, that's, that's what we're getting at there. Thanks, Ryan. So he says the image remi- remains regardless of what, uh, what a human being does. Uh, Consider this quote from a contemporary theologian. To see a human person, whether a baby in the womb through a monitor, a teenager with Down syndrome in the park, or an elderly person lying in a nursing home bed, unable to care for themselves any longer, is to see an image bearer, to catch a fading but real glimpse of the glory of the one who made us. Okay, So I think that kind of helps maybe put some... uh, handles on what that ontological view gets at. Any questions or comments at this point? Okay, well, let's look at what it means that God created us male and female or man and woman. Uh, Genesis 1.27, we read that if you're still there in Genesis 1. So we see that humanity is made in the image of God, formed by the Lord himself, Male and female, he created them, verse 27. So here is the second glorious element of our humanity, okay? God made us all with equal worth, but not with the same bodily identity. God's purpose from the beginning of creation was unity 
in the midst of diversity in human terms. So if you read through Genesis 2, right, you will see how it illuminates just how strong God's desire is for this unity in diversity. So let me just kind of highlight for the sake of time instead of reading the whole chapter, let me just kind of highlight some of these things. First, Adam is made by God's own hand and breathed into by the Lord, verse 7. He receives instruction from God himself about the function of the garden. He is directed to eat any fruit from any tree with the lone exception, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is restricted, verses 16 and 17. And then in the Garden of Eden, unencumbered by sin, Adam listens to God. He is free, not free to do anything that he wants, but free to please God. And yet, even in this setting of paradise, there is one thing that is not good, according to the text. Verse 18, what is it? What is the one thing that is not good, according to Genesis 2, 18? Right. Adam is alone, and this is not good. So what does God do? Yeah. So God undertakes this distinct creative act and produces a masterpiece, right? The Lord makes Adam's wife from Adam's rib. Uh, Look at verse 21, chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And then verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So what does God do after he creates Eve? He brings her to Adam. And what does this imply? Yeah, exactly, right? They are are to be together. And look at Adam's response in verse 23, right? He gives her a name, right? He calls her woman, not in, obviously, that's the English (laughs) understanding of that. So note that marriage is not a creational anecdote, but it is a human archetype, okay? It is the very plan of God for the perpetuation of human existence. God intends procreation in the context of marriage. It is God's plan for the perpetuity of the human race, and it is God's design for human flourishing. And we must acknowledge that this design is altogether lovely. One man and one woman leaving father and mother, holding fast to his wife. That's Genesis 2.24. And then post-fall, if we consider the rest of Scripture, we see in Ephesians 5.22 that spouses Spouses image the Christ church paradigm through husbandly headship and wifely submission. So this continues even after the fall. Okay, So the teaching of Scripture is clear. We are made men and women by God for His glory. So our identity is not to be understood separate from our body. I think you see the implications of that in the culture that we live in. But rather our bodies shape our identity. Okay? So we do not become a biblical man or a biblical woman on our wedding day, but rather at the moment of conception. Male or female, we grow into this calling. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, but also single males or single females devoted to 
discipling spiritual sons and daughters in scripturally sound ways. So singleness, right, is no less is no lesser a call um, because according to 1 Corinthians 7, it allows for a unique type of service unto the Lord, right? So created male and female for God's glory. Any questions or comments uh, on this aspect of what it means to be human? Do you, do you feel this aspect of humanity challenged in our culture today? Yeah. 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 So I think it's clear that the the diversity of male and female does reflect God's glory maybe in different ways, but as I think I said at the beginning that uh how did I how did I word it? Essentially that the the worth is the same, right? So it's not like maleness reflects God's nature in a better way than being female. That they're they're they both have uh, uh, common. That's not the right word I'm looking for. They both have similar value and worth. Right? They're just different expressions of that. Now, as to your point, I don't. I'm not exactly sure, and maybe you could speak to that as to a point like. Male and female, do we do we reflect that differently? Was that kind of the first part of your question? Okay. Yeah, I think it's important to note that yeah that that both the creation of man and the creation of woman were distinct creative acts by God, right? Um, I think one, that of that the role of woman, I think we see uniquely there in Genesis two in her creation, and, and Paul would write about that in Corinthians, right? Because woman came from man, then that means certain things, but it's it's never a question of value. And I think that you know we could look at the Trinity as an example of that. Like we see Christ submitting to the Father, but no one would argue that Jesus is any less valuable or deserving of worship than the Father. It's 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 His glory to do so, right? And so, in the ways that God has called us male and female, it is our, it is our, it is, you know, it glories God and it glorifies God, and it is our glory to do so in those distinct ways. So that's good. That's a good question. Okay, for the sake of time, because we have a lot uh, to cover this morning, I'm just going to briefly comment on work, vocation, and rest. That could be a, a lesson in and of itself. Um, but I, I did list some verses there in your handout under that. Uh, for further consideration. So let me just say that part of what Scripture has to say about what it means to be human is that we were created to work, right? And then to rest. Uh, This is at least one of the implications of the creation week that we considered uh, last time in our our talk on creation. Work is not a result of the fall. We see this pre-fall, right? Certainly work is more difficult, laborious, less rewarding because of the fall. Um, 
but work itself is part of what it means to be human. Okay? All right, so that's just a brief, and I, I understand that that was maybe a little rushed, but that's a brief um, talk on the doctrine of humanity. We're going to shift our focus now to the doctrine of sin. And this, as I mentioned, is really a, a natural uh, segue because these two do- doctrines, the doctrine of humanity and sin, are linked. We've already mentioned um, this morning that when, it, when we discuss what it means to be human, we have to acknowledge the reality of the fall, which is to acknowledge the existence of sin. So if you were to ask some random person on the street or maybe on campus or at, at your work, what's wrong with the world? What type of answers might you get? What's wrong with the world? Yes. Okay. So polarization among people, absolutely. What else might someone point to? Yeah. Okay. Oppression from governments. Okay. Inequality. Maybe lack of education, breakdown of the family, sexual revolution, sexual oppression, depends on which side of the aisle you're on sometimes, religious extremism, political disagreement. I mean, you know, these are all things that you might likely hear to the response of this question, what's wrong with the world? Now, you're unlikely to hear the response that one newspaper columnist got when he asked this question from the Christian theologian G.K. Chesterton in the 20th century. Chesterton was a Catholic theologian, author, and cultural commentator. And when responding to the newspaper editor's question, what's wrong with the world? Anybody know how Chesterton answered? Two words. He took the time to write them down in mail, and they didn't have email back then. Chesterton answered, what's wrong with the world? I am. What's Chesterton's point? It's in here, exactly, Sean. The fundamental reason that the world is not the way it's supposed to be is because of my sin, right? If everything else in the world were perfect and yet I was sinful, there would be things wrong with the world. Chesterton understood what so many of our contemporaries don't. The problem is not out there, it's in here. Of course, he was informed with the biblical understanding of the doctrine of sin. And the Bible's response to what is wrong with humanity is the same as Chesterton's. Our most pressing problem isn't structural, which is all those things that others might name, but moral, right? Sin has messed us all up, and in doing so has messed up the structures that we have identified uh, this morning. The problem with sin for the contemporary mind is that it just doesn't make sense, right? Sin has vanished from our moral imagination. So we have dysfunction and neurosis and bad habits and self-destructive behavior. We have diagnoses, but we don't have sin. And why is that? Why is this idea or doctrine of sin 
vanished from the modern mind. Yep, absolutely true. Why else? <laughs> yeah. So in, in both of those uh, answers, the standard has shifted from what? Yeah. There's this, the standard, that's right, the standard has shifted, shifted from God, right? Sin, the idea of sin has vanished, quite honestly, because the idea of God, the standard giver, has vanished, right? Sin assumes a standard. So, just for example, have you ever thought about the difference between calling something evil and calling something sinful, right? Our modern world has no problems with calling something evil. We can say that the Taliban's abuse and oppression of women in Afghanistan is evil, or we might point to a child molester and how they prey upon children and call their acts evil. Doing so expresses a moral revulsion without setting it against a standard. So both evil and sin can be used to describe something that's horrific and heinous, but only sin understands what's evil in relationship to God. So make no mistake, every human being is a moral agent. Every society in the history of the world has its own lists of right and wrong. But apart from God, these lists are subjective. They're thinly defined, loosely agreed upon. That's what we see in our culture today, right? We simply don't agree on what is right and wrong. What's wrong to one group of people is maybe not as bad to someone else or vice versa. And so in our culture, most of what's held out to be wrong is simply something that hurts someone else. Now, what's the problem with this standard for morality? If our definition of morality is what might hurt someone else, what is wrong with this definition or this standard? Is there anything wrong with this definition? Say again. It's a good place to start. Is everything that hurts me necessarily wrong? Yeah, that's exactly right. In an attempt to liberate ourselves from God's moral standard, we have instead this oppressive, shifting, subjective morality. In contrast, Christianity asserts the existence of sin, which is to say that God exists and he has a standard for all of humanity. Okay? So last week we looked at the biblical doctrine of creation. In reading parts of Genesis 1, we saw that God's creation was fundamentally good. But then Genesis 3 happened. The fall, the introduction of sin into the biblical story it's really the first plot twist of the Bible, and then everything after Genesis 3 hinges on this. So sin is such a dominant theme in the Old Testament that the original Hebrew language utilizes several different words to capture its meaning. 
the most common word for sin used over 600 times is that it carries the sense of missing the mark, falling short of the goal or failing. The second most common term for sin translated iniquity in older translations or wickedness or perversion in modern ones has a root meaning of bending or twisting. So here the image is one of distortion. Sin is a twisting or perversion of that which was once straight. And then the third term for sin is usually rendered transgression or rebellion. So our, maybe our best modern equivalent would be that of crime. So sin in this sense is a criminal behavior against God's law. So we could, we could keep on going. The Bible speaks of sin as unrighteousness, ungodliness, a debt that remains to be paid. Sin also makes us unfit for God's presence. So if you consider, consider Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. At its essence, sin is an attempt to elevate self into the place of God. Or as R.C. Sproul said, it is cosmic treason. In all of this, laid in seed form in the very first temptation in the garden, Genesis 3-5, where the tempter said to Eve, you will be like God. So that is, friends, what we would call the bad news. But here's the good news, and most of you know this. There is a solution to your problem, my problem of sin. To echo the words of John the Baptist in John 1.29, when he first laid eyes on Jesus, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' very name gives us a reason for his coming. And so Matthew 1.21 says, You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Bible understands sin as our problem, our main problem, our only problem. And the solution uh, to our sin problem can only be fully appreciated in the person of Jesus Christ. But we have to go back to the beginning and turn our attention back to Genesis. So let's look at Genesis 3 again. Okay, so turn to Genesis 3. I won't read verses 1 through 7 for the sake of time, but that's where I want to draw your attention. So God had made the world and everything in it, and it was very good, which is how God describes it at the end of the creation week. He made man and woman to exercise dominion over creation, to rule the land, to fill it with children, to steward the garden. And then we pick up in Genesis 3.1, and we see the temptation of Adam and Eve. So this chapter describes the tragic entrance of sin into the world, specifically into the human heart. And it gives an explanation for the universality of man's sinful condition. It also prepares us for how the God of creation will show himself to be the God of redemption, which is good news. So the first sin, the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, teaches us three things about all sin. Okay, so first... Notice how our first parents' sin sought to redefine the basis for knowledge. For it gave a different answer to the question, what is true? So in that passage, as you look through verses 1 through 7, what is the contrast between the differing definitions of truth uh, that we get here in the first chapters of Genesis? And where do each come from? 
So the first definition of truth comes from God. And then the second definition of truth or attempt to redefine truth comes from the serpent. And how do they differ? You'd have, you technically would have to look back at chapter 2 to see how, what God said, right? So in verse 217, what did God say would happen if they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Okay, and then in chapter 3, verse 4, what does Satan say? What does Satan tell Eve? Well, not sure. Could there be a starker contrast, right? How does sin tempt us in the same way it tempted Eve? Okay. So the tempter tempted her with the pleasures of sin, okay? Specifically with this idea of regards to answering this question, what is true? How does every, every temptation to sin tempt us? What does every temptation call into question? God's character, the trustworthiness of God's word, of God's truth, Right? So every temptation is an attempt to persuade us that God's word is not trustworthy, right? God said that if you do this, you will surely die, but you will not surely die. So sin, every sin begins with believing the lie and disbelieving God's truth. Okay, the, sec- the second aspect of sin that we see here in Genesis 3 is that sin sought to redefine the basis for moral standards. It gave a different answer to the question, what is right? So God had made it clear that to not eat from this specific tree was right, okay? How did the serpent suggest that eating the fruit would be right? How did the serpent suggest that eating the fruit would actually be right as opposed to not eating the fruit being right? Yeah, they would gain wisdom. Or specifically, he says, you will be like God, right? Eve acted out of her own evaluation of what was right. She redefined the term rather than allowing God's word to define right and wrong. So the lesson for us here is beware of self-made morality. Third, their sin sought to redefine the basis for identity. So it gave a different answer to the question, who am I? What were Adam and Eve's true identity as defined by God? What were Adam and Eve's true identity as defined by God? Okay. Yeah, they were his image bearers created to be dependent on him and upon him and subordinate to him as their creator and Lord. 
But Adam and Eve instead succumbed to the temptation that eating the fruit would make them what? Like God. And did it happen? No. So the lesson for us here is that sin promises everything but fulfills nothing. Sin promises everything but fulfills nothing. So it's clear from these these points that pride lies at the heart of sin. Right? Sin is ultimately forsaking God in order to find in and of yourself what you were meant to find in God alone. So to summarize, we see that in Genesis 1 through through 3, God created humankind good, not corrupted, but Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And the consequence of their sin is that God curses all men and the creation with the sentence of death. This is the result of the fall. So briefly, this brings us to a challenging question, which is when and how did sin originate? If God created all things good, uh, where did sin come from? And I'll, spoiler alert, right out of the bag, I'm probably not going to answer this question satisfactorily for any of us this morning because it simply is a mystery. But there are some things that we can see from Scripture that can help shed some light on this. So the first thing is that the Bible is clear that sin does not originate with God. Okay? Sin and evil in Scripture are totally alien to God. Uh, His eyes are too pure to look on evil. He is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That's 1 John 1, 5. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. James 1, 13. Deuteronomy 32, 4 declares that God's works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So we can conclude from Scripture that God is not the author of sin. But there are hints in Scripture that prior to this temptation in the garden that we see in Genesis 3, that there had been some revolt in heaven of some of the angelic beings there. Not much is said about what happened or why it happened. So the closest that we get to this is probably from Jude Uh, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then also 2 Peter 2.4, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. So this sounds a little bit like uh, what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. So it seems that these angels were not satisfied with the position of authority that God had ordained, and they desired a higher position. <clears throat> and, though, and thus, their pride and conceit led to rebellion, very similar to what we see with Adam and Eve. So this means that both Satan's fall and Adam and Eve's fall uh, occurred under the sovereign plan of God. So think carefully with me about this, okay? The Bible is emphatic that God is sovereign, so sovereign that there is no maverick molecule in all of the created order. And the Bible insists that God is the very standard of goodness. Therefore, we can say the following. God stands behind good and stands behind evil in asymmetric ways. He stands behind good in such a way that good can ultimately be credited to him. But he stands behind evil in such a way that evil is always credited to to a secondary moral agent. 
Think about the story of Job in the Old Testament, right? Satan has no power apart from God, so without God's permission. So God is never the one who does evil. He is never the author of sin, but he governs or rules over all that happens, both good and evil, without ever doing wrong. Romans 11 in Paul's doxology at the end of that chapter uh, says that God's ways are inscrutable. That is, they're impossible to understand or interpret. So much of the origin of sin will remain to us a mystery, but not to God, for who has fathomed the mind of God? So here we have uh, something of the nature and origin of sin according to the Bible. So let's Let's put together some of these things that the Bible says about sin specifically uh, and how it has affected each of us, okay? So you have on your handout seven, uh, a theology of sin in seven statements. The first statement is this, inherited guilt. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin, okay? And this statement comes from Romans 5, 12. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin, thus our guilt is inherited. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, this is Romans 5, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the Apostle Paul is teaching that when Adam sinned in the garden, God reckoned the guilt of Adam's sin to all people that would descend from him, which is all of us. So though we did not exist in that moment, God looking into the corridors of the future, knowing our future existence, counted us guilty like Adam. If you, if you look at Romans 5, it might be helpful to turn there because we'll consider a few things here. If you look down in verses 8, 18 and 19 of chapter 5. Paul writes, Then as one man's trespasses led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Christ, many will be made righteous. So Paul is saying that Adam functioned as our representative head. All members of the human race, past and present and future, were represented by Adam in the time of testing in the garden. So as our representative, Adam sinned and God counted us all guilty in Adam. Adam was the representative for the entire human race. And the reality is this, had you or I been the first human in the garden instead of Adam? the outcome would have been the same. Now, some people still have difficulty with this doctrine of representation, but if you follow Paul's logic, you cannot accept Adam as representative of the human race in his guilt, then you can't accept Jesus as the representative of the redeemed in his righteousness. Again, verse 19, As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This doctrine is sometimes referred to as federal theology, okay, from the Latin word fetus for covenant or treaty, which is to say that God deals covenantally with man based on 
which figurehead represents you. So you're either team Adam or you're team Christ. That's it. The second statement is that of inherited corruption. We have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. So not only do we inherit guilt from Adam, we also inherit his sinful nature. This means that we are all, every one of us, born corrupted. We are not morally neutral at birth and then corrupted later on by our environment or our upbringing. We have sinful natures, or as Calvin said, we sin because we are sinners. And thus we confirm the guilty sentence that has already been assigned to us. So consider Psalm 51.5, David writing, uh, looking back on his sin of adultery and murder, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David was overwhelmed by the consequences of his own sin, and he looks back and he acknowledges that he was sinful from the very beginning. Or consider Psalm 58.3, The wicked go astray from the womb, they err from their birth, speaking lies. Okay, Now, it's important at this point to point out that our sinful nature... Oh, we have a question? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's a natural, a natural thing to consider. Um, let's talk after class. Just for the sake of, that's a great question, and, and that's certainly th- something that comes up, but just for the sake of time, um, let's, let me, because I don't have an airtight answer for that. I don't know that anyone does, but it's nuanced, and so I'd want to be able to, to do that, okay? Um, but good question. Thank you for thinking through that. Um, it is important to point out that our sinful nature does not mean that we are sinful as we, as sinful as we could be, okay? There are multiple restraining graces in each person's life. To varying degrees. What are some of these restraints in the world? What are some of the things that keep us from being as sinful as we could be? The laws, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a break in our sinfulness in those eight hours at night. Yeah, praise God. <laughs> Many parents have said that of their children. They're at their best when they're sleeping, yeah. What else? Okay, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, familial ties. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. All good things. So our family, relational ties, government, education, our own conscience, right? All of these flow from God's, what we might call his common grace to all people, albeit in varying degrees. So by God's grace, none of us are as sinful as we could be. The Puritan would say, though, my sins are many, your graces outnumber them. Nevertheless, we are born sinners and frequently sin as a result of this corrupted nature. Our third statement, total depravity. In our natural state, we lack 
all spiritual good before God. We are spiritually and morally bankrupt, having nothing to offer to God. And so the hymn writer would say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So though unworthy before God, morally bankrupt, we are still created in the image of God. As Sam pointed out, there are vestiges of that nature still within us, but that image is marred and corrupted. Even sinful man is capable of doing good deeds on a horizontal level, right? So even the unregenerate man can do good things uh, in relation to other people. The problem is the motive, right? Our motive for doing good deeds is never to bring God's God glory apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In most cases, those horizontal good deeds are motivated out of our desire to glorify ourselves or out of our concern for our own reputation, someone else pointed out. So even in this sense, our good deeds are as filthy rags. For as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. One Christian theologian summarizes the doctrine of total depravity like this. Man in his raw, natural state as he comes from the womb is morally and spiritually corrupt in disposition and character. Every part of his being, his mind, his will, his emotions, his affections, his conscience, his body, has been affected by sin. And we see this throughout all of the Bible. Genesis 6, 5 through 6. The Lord saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Psalm 14, 2 through 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Nope, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you before you were regenerate, Christian, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So that's the doctrine of total depravity. Point four, total inability. In our actions, we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. So what's wrong with the following depiction of the gospel? We're drowning in the ocean and God throws us a life raft, which we then have to grab onto and then he pulls us out of the water. What's wrong with that depiction of the gospel? Yeah, we did, we did something, exactly, right? It requires a, a, a good decision on our part to grab a hold of the life raft. Scripture does not speak of us this way, capable of doing what God requires us. We're dead, spiritually speaking, as we just saw in Ephesians, in our sins and trespasses. So we're not struggling to swim at the surface of the water We're already dead and sinking to the bottom. Because of our sinful nature, we are unable to change our character or act contrary to that nature. We cannot please God in the flesh, according to Romans 8, 7, and 8. Or as Jeremiah says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That's Jeremiah 13, 23. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural person does not accept 
the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The life raft, in our analogy, to the natural man is foolish. It's silly. It's pointless. What's the point of grabbing hold? So that's our total inability. The fifth point, these last three will go a little bit more quickly. All are sinful before God. So just briefly speaking, Christ, uh, Scripture testifies to the universal sinfulness of mankind. No one is exempt. David, the psalmist says, no one living is righteous before you, Psalm 143.2. Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So the, the sinfulness of humanity is universal. Point six, a single sin makes us guilty before God. So as we saw earlier, sin is in personal opposition to God. Therefore, it is not the greatness of the law-breaking that makes sin worthy of punishment, but the greatness of the lawgiver. Paul affirms that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's Romans 5.16. And James teaches, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. James 2.10. And then our last and final point, we deserve God's eternal wrath because of our sin. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3.36. Or as we referenced earlier, Ephesians 2.3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Sin is not only unjust, reprehensible, filthy, and disgusting to God, it conjures up God's right and good judgment. God disapproves of sin and rightly pours out wrath on his enemies who have rejected him and his commands. So why does God punish sin? Let me close with this quote from the theologian John Murray. To be complacent towards that which is the contradiction of his own holiness would be a denial of himself, speaking of God. So that is the correlate of his holiness to his wrath. And this is just saying that the justice of God demands that sin receives its retribution. The question is not at all, how can God, being what he is, send men to hell? The question is, how can God, being what he is, save men from hell? Let's pray. Father, it is sobering to take a look and be honest about our sinfulness. Lord, I think that considering the nature of sin and its effect on our humanity uh, is not just an abstraction. We all feel the weight of our sin. Even the unbeliever, Lord, looks for uh, escape from guilt and shame of sin. But as Christians, we hope in those words that we read earlier, we look at Christ with John the Baptist and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world. Lord, help us to see sin as it is, as you see it, so that we can see the solution to that sin as glorious as it really is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.